0: Our second reading from God's Holy Word is taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 6 through 10. Let him who is taught the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our New Testament reading this morning, I think the most interesting verse for us is verse 8. Verse 8 reads, For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. What does this mean well linguistically, and by that I mean uh, just the way the words fall out. There are four possible options for what Paul is saying here. The first one is that Paul is backpedaling on everything he has said in the epistle up to this point that it turns out that salvation is by the works of a man, that a man will sow to the flesh or sow to the spirit, and by his efforts in sowing will, in fact, either win eternal life or not. Linguistically, if we were to pull these words out of the epistle and just look at them by the rules of language, a case could be made, that's what it means, It's hard to picture that, given that the entirety of the epistle has been the complete opposite message of that, but linguistically, could be. There are, however, three other options, and they are much more in line with everything that has already been said. Um, Jerome, who translated the Vulgate, of all people, and Augustine have uh, some interesting commentary upon this verse, and uh, they, well, I let them speak for themselves. I will first read Jerome, and then I will read Augustine. All that we say, do, or think, says Jerome, is sown in two fields, the fallen nature and the spirit. If what comes from our hand, mouth, and heart is good, it is sown in the Spirit and will produce fruits of eternal life. If it is bad, when harvested from the field of the sin nature, it will produce an unsavory crop of corruption for us. It should be observed that to the one who sows in the flesh is given an additional term in his flesh. But the one who sows in the spirit is said not to sow in his spirit, but simply in the spirit. For the one who sows good things sows not in his own spirit, but in God's, from whom he will also reap eternal life. So Jerome, of all people, uh, highlights this verse and says, when you read this verse, it says that you're sowing in the flesh, you're sowing in the spirit, being the Lord's spirit, not your own, and he makes that distinction. Um, And that would go along very well with everything we've read already, because we've heard about the Holy Spirit at length, beginning in chapter 3, getting to chapter 5, there has been a major emphasis of being in the spirit. The spirit has been shown to be the, the generator of all good things. And Jerome would certainly be uh, in the spirit of everything that's been said. Augustine says very similarly this. To sow in the spirit is to serve righteousness from faith and with love and not to heed the desires of sin, even though they arise from mortal flesh. When we are under grace, we sow in tears when desires arise from our animal body which we resist by not consenting so that we may reap in joy. We reap when by the reformation of our body no vexation or peril of temptation comes to trouble us from any physical source. You'll notice that Augustine too uses the language of we sow in the spirit. It's the exact same language that Jerome used and In Jerome's translation, uh, you have some of what he said, but not all of it. Reading from verse 8, from the Dure Reims translation, which was translated from Jerome's Vulgate, we read, For what things a man shall sow, those also shall he reap. For he that soweth in his flesh, of the flesh also shall reap corruption but he that soweth in the spirit of the spirit shall reap life everlasting it looks like jerome had that reading in mind and he's the one that translated it it looks like augustine had that reading in mind and augustine is one of the first reformers but that reading doesn't come across in the greek new testament like it does in the vulgate Why is that? Well, you're going to have to ask a better language scholar than me because that actually gets beyond my pay grade. But when you move into the Greek New Testament, what Jerome and Augustine is saying doesn't quite line up with the text as we have it. Which brings us to our two other options. Uh, One of them is that what's being talked about is a description of a farmer sowing in his own field And when you stop and think about what farmers are and what they do, uh, farmers only have their own fields. Up in Iowa, when I pastored uh, farmers galore, they all knew where the lines of their fields were, and they didn't harvest from somebody else's field, they harvested from their own. They didn't sow other people's fields, they sowed their own. They had some fields and they didn't have others there's a distinction you're a farmer of this field and not of that it seems that that would be a good way of looking at what Paul is saying he has through the epistle basically told us to hitch our wagon quote-unquote to one thing and not hitch it to the other which is an example of the kind of language this would be If I were to say to you, you should hitch your wagon to this idea because it's a good one, not a person here, with maybe one or two exceptions, could literally do what I just suggested because almost nobody here has a wagon. But it's picturesque language, and it's talking about laying hold of, in faith and hope, something, putting all your eggs in that basket, which is, again, the same kind of language we're talking about, really trusting in something, Uh, in this case, the farmer of the flesh owns a field of flesh, and what he does is going to be sowed to that field of flesh, and it's going to bring up a crop that will grow out of that kind of field, whereas another farmer who has another field, the field of the Spirit, is going to sow in that field which is his. This has been assigned to him. This has been assigned to him. In the field of the farmer, he is sowing spiritual fruit because it is a spiritual field. It is, in fact, the Holy Spirit which has been given to him by God. And from the Holy Spirit will come the fruit of eternal life because he owns the right field. He doesn't own the field of flesh. The field of flesh is owned by a fleshly man. The fleshly man sows deeds of the flesh and it produces the crop that the flesh will produce and that crop is corruption. That which is done in human flesh will lead to decay because that's really what corruption is talking about. Nothing that human flesh sets its hand to do built on human intent and purpose, will ultimately last or remain beautiful. It may briefly begin that way, but decay will set in from the very beginning, and it's only right because it's coming out of the field of the flesh, and that's what happens to the flesh. Human bodies grow old, sick, and die, and they mirror human spirits. They also, through this life, corrupt, 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 and then die. The fourth way of looking at this, and I think, though, this is what Paul is talking about. He is talking about life experientially. He is talking about life as you experience it in this world, the quality of life, the things that happen in it. Jesus said... I have come that they may have life, and they may have it abundantly. And in the context of our Lord's statement, He is not talking about something that is waiting for you the moment after death. Now, it changes the moment after death. It certainly broadens out to its uttermost. But when our Lord said I have come that they may have life and they may have it abundantly in context he's talking about spiritual life that begins while we're here. It is not in its fullness but it is really ours to have. He is talking about the way our perception is to the world. He's talking about the way we react to God's good gifts. He's talking about Whether we possess joy in the Lord, a joy that can transcend suffering, persecution, death, frustration, all of that is an experience of eternal life, and it belongs to the believer here and now. The believer has a taste of heaven. It will only grow stronger when he is closer. The unbeliever does not have that taste of heaven, and the unbeliever, no matter how religious he may be in practice, no matter how devoted to religion he may be, he doesn't experience eternal life, he okay, doesn't have it. Internally, there is negativity, internally there is sinfulness, internally There is dark depravity, and that is what he experiences in this life. It's what takes place here. It's what takes place here. It interprets what comes into the man and shapes and molds it so that his experience of life is constant corruption. This comes out in fruit as bitterness. It comes out in the speech of a man who says, Nothing gets better, it only gets worse. Uh, My life is not as good today as it was yesterday. Um, God is in heaven, but really I don't feel the blessings of God. Uh, I, I feel like everything is decaying in me and around me. It's an experience of life. I am getting older, you are getting older, You know what it feels like to be in the body, to have the body decaying. Even if you are in fantastically good shape at this moment, you know what I'm talking about. We live in a physical body that is corrupting day by day. But inwardly, I experience the joy of the Lord. Inwardly, because he is present with me, uh, the things that come into my life, though they come into a body corrupting, Though they come into a spirit not yet made completely perfect, they come into me through the presence of my Lord being with me, and the fruit that I reap from this life, the events, the experiences, the the work of my hands, which God gives me to do, all of it, in the Holy Spirit, in God the Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who is in me. And I am in him, I am living an eternal life begun now. And the things that I sow actually are sown in him, so that Jerome and Augustine are certainly right in principle. Uh, The fruit of my life comes from the Spirit, not from my flesh. That which still comes from my flesh is still nothing. But the overall fruit of my life is from the Spirit, and it is fruits of eternal life, and it's good, because God is its origin. That, I think, is the way we should take verse 8. Taking it in that way seems to be most in line with verse 7. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will reap. It is what a man experiences himself from his sowing that is being talked about. That word, by the way, uh, deceit, uh, this is kind of an extra. It's not really on the the flow of my sermon per se, but um, the word is very picturesque. It's built from the Greek word apato which means to deceive by giving a distorted impression or false sense of reality, to trick, to cheat, to beguile. But it's not apato, it's actually a much more intensified form of it. It's exapato, this is an intensified form of the word. It means to beguile thoroughly, to deceive wholly, to deceive completely. And it's in a verb tense that isn't, now you might be deceived, watch out, you don't get deceived. It's actually in the verb tense that says, stop being deceived. Paul is writing to people who have had the wool pulled over their eyes. It's not a hypothetical, it's not a maybe. They have been deceived by someone into believing that you can so fleshly seed, and you will get a spiritual crop. They have come to believe this, and Paul is saying, knock it off. That would mock God. If you want spiritual fruit, you want the Holy Spirit. If you think you can sow fleshly seed and have spiritual fruit, You are deceived to the uttermost. Someone has tricked you. Someone is cheating you. You are going to be on the losing end of this. Now, Paul doesn't say who it is who is deceiving them. And he probably doesn't because of all the various possibilities, they're all to blame. You have false teachers who have come to them and have said, God will be related to by your physical strength, by your effort, and they have been eloquent in the way they have said it. They have brought it in the language of Judaism and philosophy, and they have beguiled the Christian church to believe that God will be pleased with your works of the flesh. But are they holy to blame? Well, probably not. Because the flesh likes that message. In fact, the flesh will give you that message without any help. Your fallen nature wants to relate to God on the basis of how good it is. It wants to stand before God and say, I am here in the presence of my maker because I deserve to be here. Your sinful nature wants to say that. My sinful nature wants to say that. I want to be worthy of God. I want to be worthy of heaven. I want to be worthy of salvation. I want to look at my neighbor and say, it's a real shame you're not as good as me. I really do. In my my deep, darkest heart, that's a temptation. I would like to be able to say that. And it is the very, very essence of sin and depravity. I don't need a false teacher to pull the wool over my eyes. I'll do it myself if God's word doesn't get in the way. And Paul says, stop being deceived. You can't sow spiritual goodness. Only the Spirit can do that. Works righteousness has to produce uh, corruption. Uh, Good works have to be in the Spirit. What exactly is a good work? It's not as easy a thought as you might imagine. When the Reformation began, you had a church that was fairly universally pressing upon men, impress God by your good works, and they gave them a list of good works to do. Some of them looked like good works, and then some of them were kind of odd, but uh, it was assumed everybody knew what a good work was, and the reformers uh, had to begin at grass tasks and ask, "What exactly is a good work? If we're going to call a, a work good, what is it?" Well, this is the answer they came up with. It's it's from our confession, the Savoy Declaration, but it's word for word the Westminster Declaration. It's also The 1689 Baptist Confession, this is the word of the Reforming Church asking the question what is a good work? And the answer is good works are only such as God has commanded in His holy word. So, at the very foundation of it, a good deed is something that God has said to do, it is not something that we have imagined is good. Human beings have imagined things being good that have been beastly. They have been massacres. They have been brutalities. Human beings can imagine the worst of sins as a good work. But a good work begins with, Good works are only such as God has commanded in his holy word, and not such as, without the warrant thereof, are devised by men out of blind zeal, or upon any pretense of good intention. These good works, done in the obedience to God's commandments, are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And by them believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of adversaries and glorify God, whose workmanship they are, created in Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life. Now, if I were to break out those two paragraphs, that would be my whole sermon, and that's not my intent today. But having read them to you, having heard what a good deed is, where... In that, is there any place for human flesh to produce it? A good work is a spiritual thing. A good work is a godly thing. Emphasis on the first part of the word, God. It's given by God, commanded by God, interpreted by God. It is God's will for your life. It is perfectly God's will for your life. It is done out of devotion to God. It is done from holy faith where is there a foundation for human flesh to produce any of that? The answer is, there is not. Now, it can be counterfeit. And going further in what the Reformers said, they address the concept of counterfeit in this way. Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and to others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end to glorify God, they are therefore sinful, and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive grace from God. And yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing to God. So, A good deed, by its very definition, is to glorify God. It's done out of love for God. It is done because you are in relationship to God. All of that has to be produced by God. God has to bring you into His covenant. God has to bring you into sanctification. God has to put His Spirit in you. He has to put you in the Spirit. All of this has to happen before a deed is good. Men admire counterfeit goodness. When a counterfeit good person dies, the world celebrates them. When an actually good person dies, someone who has been in the grip of the Lord and has done spiritual things, the world reviles them and uses the opportunity of their death to get one last shot in at them. And by this, you can kind of tell who's real. If the world celebrates somebody at their death, the odds are they're not real. But if they're taking final shots because they hate their guts, that person probably walked with the Lord. And you can see the distinction. The concept of goodness is something that God wants from us. Ironically, the false teachers have come and have said walk in your flesh and do good deeds. The flesh will not produce them but God really does want good deeds from us. There are two words for goodness in the Greek New Testament and in these brief verses, verse 7 through 10, both of them appear and one of them multiple times. The uh, The word for goodness in the uh, Greek New Testament is either agathos, meaning inwardly good, of a good constitution or nature, hence that which produces benefit and genuinely good effects and results, something that has its focus on the inward character and thus carries the idea of morally or inherently virtuous or brave, worthy of admiration or respect, or the word is kalos, which means good in appearance, beautiful, aesthetically satisfying, and pleasing, that which evokes admiration and a sense of the lovely and beautiful, praiseworthy, good, having the perceived value and outward impression of charm and attractiveness. Uh, They're not exactly the same word, but they are both used here which means that they are not opposites to be contrasted. There is agathos, which means something that is morally good, inherently good. It may not look beautiful. You can think of, say, the conquest of Canaan. In the Greek Old Testament, agathos is used of the conquest of Canaan a lot. And kalos isn't, because it's not really lovely and aesthetically pleasing to engage in gory battles. But callos is good too, and it talks about in the eyes of God especially, doing goodness is seen as beautiful to him, and the saints will see it as beautiful. It is beautifying the world from the point of view of God, and both of these words are present here overwhelmingly. Paul saying, God wants from his church goodness, moral goodness beautiful goodness, uh, beautiful righteousness that reflects the character of God. God wants that, and the only thing that can produce it is the actual grace of God, not the arm of flesh. Paul makes this very clear in many places, uh, but one I would like to go to uh, to demonstrate what he's talking about is... Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. He's taken up the the issue of good deeds and, and spirituality here, just as much as in Galatians, and here he summarizes it. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about what God has done in the man Christ Jesus God has shown all the world grace. That's unmerited favor. That's God acting first. That's God reaching to man. God has shown himself gracious in Jesus Christ. And what happens when God is gracious to sinners? The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So Paul says... You know, you know how good works are going to happen in the world? God is going to show his grace. He is going to, in Jesus Christ, be merciful to sinners, not count their sins against them, redeem them in faith. Grace will teach us to say no to ungodliness, not the call of works righteousness. Works righteousness will ultimately embitter us. Not at first, but the more we strive to be good enough to be acceptable to God, the longer we do it, the more we will fail at it, the more it will reveal itself to be difficult, and the more we will resent God because we think he's made us do it. Grace is what makes us say no to ungodliness. Grace is what fills our hearts with thankfulness and praise. Grace teaches us to say no. Grace teaches us to look for the godly hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Having received faith, we begin to live in the light that the Lord (laughs) Christ is coming again, and the man who is following works righteousness, the last thing he wants to have happen is the Lord Jesus Christ to come back. Because he has not yet got it right. It will be tomorrow. He will succeed tomorrow, of course. But today, he is not yet ready to stand in God's presence. The last cry he wants to give up is, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But the man who has received grace longs for his return. He says, come Lord Jesus. He longs for him. And he is called by grace, not just to say no to ungodliness, but to an act of obedience. He is redeemed by God's hand, not his own. He knows what it means to be thankful. He knows what it means to praise a Savior who saved a sinner, a wretch like me. He knows that God has saved such a person, and now he is zealous for the honor and glory of God. And he has become what the King James puts it as, a truly peculiar person. Because the world doesn't understand the grateful, redeemed man. He is odd, strange, he stands out. And the King James actually captures perfectly what Paul is saying. Uh, Taking away the phrase, a peculiar people, does not do the passage justice. God calls us to be peculiar. Do you feel like you stand out like a sore thumb? Do you feel like the rest of the world does not understand you? Do you feel like this world is not your home, you're only passing through? Well, your feelings are correct. You are a peculiar person, and you should be. Your citizenry is somewhere else. That country will one day hold all creation. The future belongs to you, but for right now your citizenship is somewhere else, and you are honestly a peculiar person, very strange in this place. But what has made you strange is the grace of God. He has shown you kindness and mercy. He has extended to you what needed to be extended for Him to be just, and yet the justifier, and He has redeemed you, and that's going to produce good works. Verse 9 assures us these good works are going to have lasting fruit. Paul implores you when he says, and let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. God calls his people to build lasting things. We talk about the, uh, the, um, uh, the fellowship of the saints. We talk about the, the, the communion of the saints. We are ministered to by ages past, by people who are now dead. The good deeds they did still live, and they minister to us. You will minister to others once you're dead. Because God will give the fruit of your actions living life. You will not live under the sun. You will not live in futility. God will bless the fruit of your good deeds. Because they're not yours, they're His. The only thing that will prevent this from happening is if you give up. Live in the Spirit, Paul has told us in the former chapter, the Spirit is in you, you're a redeemed person, but you live in the Spirit, don't give up living in the Spirit, and your fruits will be profitable. It is God's promise. Uh, We are destined to win, in the words of DeGarmo and Keith. Um, God will prevail, and he will prevail through his people. But we must not give up. It is tempting to give up. The world looks big, and we look small to us. And we are. But to God, the world is as a speck of nothingness upon the balance, says Isaiah. To God, the world is nothing. And God will bring forth the fruit of the deeds he has given us what is the scope of these good deeds well uh, they are to all men says Paul one is reminded of the, the lawyer who challenged Jesus with the question who is my neighbor and Jesus gave him the answer you know the person you most despise and would despise you that's your neighbor All men means all men. God has put us in the world to be a blessing to all men, including those who don't like our God and don't like us, to our persecutors, our slanderers, our critics. God intends to do good to all men through us. But Paul does make a clarification. Let us do good to all, but us especially to the household of faith. There is a divine preference. God has preferred us. He has chosen us. We are his special people. We are the apple of his eye. And it is not morally wrong. It is morally right to prefer your brother and sister in the Lord. Do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. That's what families do, right? I mean, families care for others outside of them if they are godly families, but blood is thicker than what, right? Well, you are the family of God. Jesus Christ has made you brothers and sisters. That dynamic is a holy one. You are surrounded by your siblings, and God calls us to prefer one another, and it's kind of ironic where this thought may have come from. The very first verse of what I read kind of stands out from the chapter, and you're not sure where to place it. The first verse is, let him who is taught the Word share in all good things with him who teaches. The, uh, The basic teaching of the verse is your teaching elder needs to be supported. Share the things of your life with your teaching elder so that he can continue his life and do his ministry. Where did that thought come up from? Well, it seems to have come up from verse 1 through 5, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. So that passage taught us to reach out to those who have fallen in sin, a sin of belief, a sin of morality, regardless, reach out to them and restore them, and it's talking to all the church, it's talking to all the believers, but Paul suddenly starts talking about the teaching elder, to use our Reformed language. Uh, The reason for that is who is actually going to kind of spearhead this process? Well, likely it's going to be the pastor. Now, it's given to the whole church, but what do I do? What is my job? My job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's not that I do the work of ministry, but I equip you for the work of ministry. But if I equip you for the work of ministry, that means I actually have a hand in every ministry you do. And so Paul begins to think about the teaching elder, and he says, you need to support them. They are doing a work which is noble and right, They need to be able to survive. You can't save the world if you can't pay the rent. Consider your pastor. But then he goes on to talk about doing good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. It seems that in thinking about this, Paul began to consider how do we treat one another, and oftentimes we don't treat one another as we should. We don't prefer one another as we should. And one of the major casualties of that is the pastor. Uh, When I was in Bible college, one of my professors made the joke that in medieval times, ministers had to take three vows, a vow of faithfulness, a vow of chastity, and a vow of poverty, and we Protestants have limited it to only one, which is the vow of poverty. That's not really true for a number of ministers, uh, but it often is true. And even such a luminary as Jerome wondered if Paul... was not thinking about that when he gave us our passage. Jerome goes on to say this. Um, it seems to me possible that this passage relates to the earlier statement so that he is using the name household of faith to refer to teachers who ought, as he says, to be supplied with all that is reckoned good by those who hear him. Maybe so. That may be the way Paul has been thinking. He's been thinking uh, the teaching elders, the, the, the uh, theologians of the church, uh, they're going to have to work on this situation. They're going to have to really minister to a fallen church, be kind to them, consider their job, minister to them, and make sure that they have a living. We really ought to prefer one another but it brought his thinking about what good deeds really are, and it gives him to be able to crystallize uh, what a good deed is, and it cannot be something from the flesh. In reality, if we read this paragraph aright, Paul has brought his argument in the epistle to its head, you are only going to do good if you are the farmer who has been given the field of the Spirit. You are only going to do good if you are in the spirit and not in the flesh. You are only going to be able to do good if it is God working through you. And we have this marvelous statement of the sovereignty and the grace and the love of God as it is manifested in our sanctification. Thanks be to God.